Well, it is a joy to be with you, the people of God, this morning to worship our one true and living God and now to open his word and hear from him. So I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. That'll be our text for this morning. And already a lot has been happening in Acts over the past few weeks. What we have seen in Acts 1 is that the, the resurrected Christ, while he was still on earth, was teaching his disciples about his kingdom. He spent about 40 days instructing them, talking to them about who he is, who his kingdom is, and how the whole Old Testament pointed to him and his kingdom. And then he said, you will be my witnesses throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that will happen when the promised Holy Spirit comes upon you. So you need to wait. You need to wait for the promised Holy Spirit to come. And then you will be empowered to be my witnesses throughout all the earth. So then after he had finished teaching them for about 40 days, the disciples watch Jesus as he ascends back up into heaven. He returns from where he came as the eternal son of God who became man. He ascends back up into heaven and now it's time for the disciples to wait. So they choose um, a 12th disciple, Matthias, to replace Judas the betrayer. And then they're gathered together in the upper room with about 120 folks all there waiting. And like we saw last week, look at verse uh, two of chapter two. Suddenly, suddenly the waiting is over. A sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And understandably, this drew quite a crowd. People from all over the world were there in Jerusalem at this time for Pentecost. And to their amazement, they were hearing these people, this group of 120 who the Spirit fell on, declaring the magnificent acts of God in their own languages. So look at the response of the people in verse 12. They were all, understandably, astonished and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Nothing like this had ever been seen or heard before, and the, cr <clears throat> the crowd didn't know what to make of it. They were all just staring at one another and asking, do you know what just happened? I don't know what just happened. I'm hearing him speak in my language. You're hearing him speak in your language. What is going on? What does this mean? But there are, as there always are in groups, some who are less impressed. Look at verse 13. But some sneered and said, ah, they're just drunk on new wine. Look at these crazy drunks. They've obviously had way too much to drink, and now they're just causing a raucous. Nothing to see here. Head on home. But as the crowd continued to grow, both in size and in confusion, Peter and the rest of the apostles, the spirit-filled apostles, decide to get up and explain what is going on. So look at verses 14 and 15 of Acts chapter 2. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, this massive crowd of thousands, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. <laughs> 
Peter starts off by explaining what is not happening. These people are not drunk, he says. It's way too early in the morning for that. Something else, rather, far more remarkable has happened, and Peter can't wait to tell them about it. So in verse 16 and following, Peter preaches the first Christian sermon and explains the incredible significance of what has just taken place. So think about what this must have been like for Peter and the apostles. Have you ever learned something new or exciting and you just couldn't wait to share it with somebody? You just had to get it out. Maybe it was like an awesome life hack you saw online or something you learned in a book or at a class and you just had to tell somebody about it. I imagine that is what it was like for Peter and the apostles, but way more. This isn't just some life hack. This is an opportunity to speak about Jesus Christ. Think about it. For the past 40 days or so, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, has been teaching the apostles about himself and his kingdom. He has been explaining how the entire Old Testament points to him and is fulfilled in him. Dots have been connecting. The disciples' minds have been getting blown and they are just overwhelmed with what they've been learning. And then just moments ago, the promised Holy Spirit, the one who was given to them to enable them, to empower them, to proclaim Christ has just fallen on them. So if there was ever a time Peter was ready to preach, it is right now. And boy, does he preach. And though we don't have everything he said that day, Luke has given us the highlights. And what we are going to see throughout this sermon is that Peter is laser focused on Jesus Christ. He is laser focused. He is dialed in on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He wants everyone to know with certainty that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is ruling as king, and that Jesus is building his kingdom through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. That's so important. I'm going to say that again. Peter wants everyone to know with certainty that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is ruling as king, and Jesus is building his kingdom through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. So let's look together at the first Christian sermon ever preached. So in answer to the crowd's question, what does this mean? Peter says, they are not drunk, But look at verse 16. On the contrary, this, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter's point is that what the crowd is witnessing, what has just happened, is the fulfillment of God's promise hundreds of years earlier through the prophet Joel. In other words, this is a huge moment in history. 
Something significant is taking place. All throughout the Old Testament, God had made promises to pour out his spirit on his people. And in those promises, God had said that he, think about this, he would actually come and live in his people by his spirit. And now, as of a few moments ago, that promise had been fulfilled. God's spirit has been poured out. And this language of poured out is important. It doesn't mean like pour a few little drops, like, oh, here, you get some spirit, you get some spirit. No, the idea is poured out, like the Gatorade over the coach, the bucket emptied, dumped. There's this torrential downpour. God has not been stingy with his spirit. He has opened up the floodgates of heaven and poured out his spirit on his people. And notice who gets to experience this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's look again at verses 17 and 18. And it will be in the last days, said God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days both men and women, and they will prophesy. God's spirit isn't just going to be given to a few special people like he was throughout the Old Testament. Anyone can receive the spirit now. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're young or old, or even if you're a lowly servant. In these last days, God's spirit is poured out on all people, regardless of sex, age, or social status. How different God is from us, isn't he? We are quick to make distinctions and treat some people better than others. We pick our favorites and we give them special treatment. But God is not like that at all. He freely pours out his spirit on all kinds of people. You don't have to be anyone special to receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit. God is pouring out his spirit on anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. And notice what God's spirit will empower God's people to do. Peter says they will prophesy. They will prophesy. So what does prophesy mean here in this context? I don't think it means that every Christian has the gift of prophecy as we normally understand it. I think often when we think of prophecy, we think of predicting the future, kind of like what Joel was doing hundreds of years ago when he was predicting that there's a day coming when God will pour out his spirit on all people. However, I think what's being talked about here is a different type of prophecy. I think the context points us toward a broader definition of prophecy that simply means proclaiming God's word. At its essence, what a prophet was, was the mouthpiece of God, someone who spoke God's word to God's people. At times it had a predictive nature, but at its essence, a prophet is the mouthpiece of God who speaks God's word to God's people. I think that's the definition that we see contextually here. So what God is promising is that all of his people, men and women, old and young, slave and free, all will be empowered by God to speak God's words to others. And this understanding of prophecy is consistent with what Jesus promised the Spirit would do for us in Acts 1.8. 
Jesus told them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And what's the purpose of the power? What happens when the Holy Spirit comes on you? You will be my witnesses. You will proclaim my word in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is given for the purpose of empowering each one of Christ's people to share the good news about Jesus with others. And this is exactly what we've seen happen. Look back at verse 11 of chapter 2. All those whom the Spirit had fallen on, all 120 men, women that the Spirit had fallen on, what were they doing, verse 11? They were declaring the magnificent acts of God. They were speaking boldly and powerfully about Jesus Christ. So here's the point. Proclaiming Jesus Christ isn't the job of just a few special Christians. It's what Christ has called and empowered all of his people to do. We are all, each and every one of us, Jesus' spirit-filled witnesses who have the privilege and the joy of declaring the magnificent acts of God. So this means, dear Christian, this means that when you open your mouth to share Jesus with your unbelieving friend, you are not alone. The Spirit of God is at work in you, empowering you to proclaim the good news of Jesus to those you're witnessing to. Think about your own conversion to Christ. At some point in your life, an ordinary yet spirit-filled Christian opened their mouth and spoke to you about Jesus. And your heart was changed and you gave your life to Christ. How did that happen? It wasn't because of anything special in that person. It was because God's spirit had been poured out on them and was actively empowering their witness of Jesus to you. For 2,000 years, this is how the church has grown. Normal, ordinary people filled with the Spirit of God proclaiming Jesus Christ. And one of the joys I have as an elder here at the church is interviewing people for membership. And last week we got to welcome 27 new members. It's so exciting to see what God's doing here. But one of my favorite things is in that interview process, we get to hear people's story of how God's spirit worked in their life to bring them to Jesus Christ. I love hearing those stories. No two story is the same, but what they all have in common, what every story I've heard has in common is that at some point along the way, a Christian spoke about Jesus Christ and they were saved. This is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that Peter says began with the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. From that day forward, all of God's people have been filled with God's Spirit and empowered to witness about Jesus. And this is why Peter began by saying that all this is taking place in the last days. In calling this the last days, Peter is recognizing this new chapter in history between Christ's first coming and his second coming. What has begun with the pouring out of God's spirit will come to a dramatic conclusion at the return of Christ. Look at verses 19 through 20, which describe this. 
I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. The pouring out of God's spirit at Pentecost set in motion the last days, which will inevitably lead to the final judgment on the great and glorious day of our Lord's return. However, between the pouring out of God's spirit and the final judgment, God graciously offers salvation to any who would call out to him. Look at verse 21. Then anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John Stott summarizes this so helpfully when he writes, between the day of Pentecost, when the spirit came inaugurating, kicking off the last days, and the day of the Lord, when Jesus will come concluding them, there stretches a long day of opportunity during which the gospel of salvation will be preached throughout the whole world. Today is the day of opportunity. Today, non-Christian, is the day to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Today, Christian, is the day to invite others to call out to the Lord for their salvation. But who is this Lord that we are to call on? Who is this Lord? Well, in the rest of his sermon, Peter focuses his attention on answering that question. Who is this Lord? Look at verse 22. Peter's preaching. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. You know these things. Jesus' ministry was not hidden. He's not off doing these things in a corner. Jesus' ministry was public and visible. People knew about it. You see, when you go around healing people, casting out demons, raising the dead, walking on water, calming storms with a word, feeding thousands of people, word about you tends to spread. (laughs) The people knew him. They just didn't know who he truly was. So Peter goes on to tell them. Look at verses 23 through 24. Though he, Jesus, was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Oh, Peter just packed a lot into those few sentences. What Peter is saying is that it was God's sovereign plan that this Jesus of Nazareth would die for the sins of his people. And this is a huge theme throughout Luke and Acts. Luke wants his readers to know that God is sovereignly, wisely, and powerfully working out his plan, and there is nothing absolutely nothing that can get in the way of God accomplishing his saving purposes in the world. God's people can trust his plan 
even when things seem to be spinning out of control, even when they're gonna be facing persecution and Rome and Herod seem so big and strong and powerful, even when all of this is happening, God's people can trust that God is perfectly working out his plan and nothing can get in the way of that. However, Peter's also wanting to point out that God's sovereignty doesn't mean that people aren't responsible, right? Peter boldly tells the Jews that they are the ones who use lawless people, the Romans, to nail Jesus to a cross. In the Bible, God's sovereignty is never presented in a way that eliminates human responsibility. Instead, they're, they're put right next to each other as compatible, like we're seeing here. Even though it was God's plan, no one could question that. It's been God's plan from the beginning that Jesus would die. Even though it was God's plan, the Jews and the Romans are responsible for crucifying Jesus, and Peter rightly points that out. But thankfully, that's not where the story ends, right? Even though they killed him, what did God do? God raised him. This is because, as Peter says, I love this, it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Not possible? Why wasn't it possible for Jesus to stay dead? Every other human stayed dead. Peter goes on to explain this by quoting from Psalm 16. So verses 25 through 28 are a quote from Psalm 16. So why is it not possible for Jesus to be held by death? For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. Why? Because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. It was impossible for Jesus to stay dead because it is impossible for God's word to fail. Listen to what Peter says about this psalm. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He could point to it. He can say, see, David's still in there. His rotting body is in that tomb right over there. But since David was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. 2 Samuel 7, God had made a promise to King David saying, one of your descendants will be a forever king who will sit on a forever throne and rule forever and ever and ever. So David, in light of that promise of God, verse 31, seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He, the Messiah, was not abandoned in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay. It was impossible for Jesus to stay dead because Jesus is the promised son of David who is the forever king of God's people. Thus, there was no way that death could hold him. Poor death didn't stand a chance. It had to spit him back out. And so Peter says in verse 32, God has raised this Jesus. Amen. God has raised this Jesus and we are all witnesses of this. Peter's point is that the Jesus of Nazareth, the crowd knew about. The one who did all of these miraculous signs and wonders. The one they had rejected and handed over to be crucified. That Jesus 
is the promised Messiah. That Jesus is the one who fulfilled David's prophecy in Psalm 16, and the apostles are witnesses of that. They saw the empty tomb. They saw and touched and talked with and ate with the resurrected Christ. And most recently, they saw the resurrected Jesus ascend back up into heaven and take his throne at God's right hand as King of kings and Lord of lords. So in answer to the crowd's question of what does all this mean? Why are all these people declaring the magnificent acts of God in all these different languages? Peter's answer is because of who Jesus is, where Jesus is, and what Jesus has done. Who Jesus is, where Jesus is, and what Jesus has done. Look at what Peter says in verse 33. Therefore, since Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out what you both see and hear. Jesus, the resurrected one who has ascended into heaven as the exalted king, now has poured out his kingdom-building spirit on his people. I love how Michael Horton puts it. He says, like a rocket piercing the clouds, Christ's ascension opens up a hole in history through which the spirit descends. When Jesus took his throne in heaven as the risen and exalted king, his first act was to pour out his spirit and empower all of his people to be his witnesses and spread his kingdom over all the earth. Please hear me on this. This is so important for understanding the book of Acts. Just because Jesus is no longer physically present on earth does not mean that he is disengaged or uninvolved. Absolutely not. Our risen and ascended Savior is presently, currently, at this moment, ruling and reigning from heaven through his Spirit. Both his resurrection and his ascension are vitally important for us to understand. Murray Harris puts it so well. He says, the resurrection proclaims he lives and that forever. His exaltation proclaims he reigns and that forever. The ascension of Jesus is not just some insignificant little event that explains how he went back from earth up into heaven. It's his enthronement as king of kings and lord of lords. He ascended to heaven in order to take his throne at God's right hand. Look at verses 34 through 35 and see how Peter explains this from Psalm 110. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but David himself says, the Lord, Yahweh, declared to my Lord Adonai, there are two different lords here, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a remarkable psalm, Psalm 110. And it's going to get a lot of mileage throughout the New Testament. The apostles love digging back into this to show the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. Because what David is talking about is he is prophetically seeing a conversation between God the Father, Yahweh, and Jesus, Adonai, the Lord, in which God the Father invites Jesus to sit at his right hand. 
And to sit at God's right hand in heaven is to assume a position of power and authority over all things. And it is to this seat that Jesus has ascended. And so listen to Peter's powerful conclusion in verse 36. Therefore, he says to all the crowd, let the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now we have to be careful to not misunderstand what Peter is saying here. Peter is not teaching that this merely human man named Jesus became Lord and Messiah. No, Jesus has always been the Lord. He is, after all, the eternal Son of God who came down and became one of us. The point Peter is making is that as the God-man, Jesus, in space and time, fulfilled all that his Father sent him to accomplish. And now, after completing his work on earth, he has been exalted to the Father's right hand. So the Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord on whom they must call to be saved, and he is the Messiah, the promised Savior King of God's people. But there is a big problem for Peter's listeners, isn't there? They crucified him. They brutally murdered their Lord and Messiah. Instead of treating him with the honor and glory that he deserved, they nailed his hands and feet to a cross. And at this point, I imagine a hush falls over the crowd as the full weight of what Peter has just said sinks in. They are guilty for the murder of their Lord and Messiah. Listen to how Luke describes the scene in verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, cut to their core, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Their hearts are broken over their sin. They feel the weight of their guilt before God. They have sinned grievously, and their hearts are deeply distressed. And so they ask, brothers, what should we do? Is there any hope for sinners like us who have murdered our Messiah? But then, can you imagine their joy as they hear Peter's response? With a big smile, Peter says to them, yes, there's hope. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all your sins. And you, even you, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter is saying that the Jesus they killed is the Jesus who will save them. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus is willing and eager to forgive all their sins and pour out his Holy Spirit on them. Even now, he is the Lord who is powerfully calling people to himself. What this means, oh, this is so important. What this means is that there is no sin too great 
that Jesus will not forgive. There is no sin too great that Jesus will not forgive. No matter what you have done, no matter how evil or wicked you have been, Jesus is willing to forgive you. Maybe you're here today and you're just overwhelmed with a sense of guilt. Maybe it's something that you did this week or maybe it's something that was done years ago that still lingers, that still haunts you. I want you to hear from God's word today that Jesus is promising forgiveness to any who turn to him in repentance and faith. It doesn't matter how great your sin has been. Jesus's forgiveness is greater. It's greater. So heed Peter's call to repent. Repentance is this idea of of a change of mind, a change of direction. All of us in our sin are walking away from God toward our sin. The call to repentance is a call to turn around. It's a call to recognize, I want to reject my sin and be with King Jesus. It's picking sides. It's saying I'm against my sin and I'm with King Jesus. It's a turning around, a change of mind. And do you know what's beautiful about this? It doesn't matter how far you walk this way. The moment you turn around, Jesus is right there, arms open, ready to forgive you. It's amazing how this works. And do you know, this is why baptism is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Just a few weeks ago, we had the privilege of baptizing five people. And I was in the tank with them. And it was amazing. As we lower them into the water, do you know what I get to see right there? Right, Water wash over them. And then they come up out of the water. What is that signifying? The complete forgiveness of sins. They are washed, clean, fully forgiven, fully loved by God. And they're raised to walk in newness of life. They're given a new identity in Jesus Christ. His spirit has been poured out on them. They belong to him now. And he will never let them go. And so the life of a Christian is characterized by this ongoing life of repentance and faith, of turning away from our sin that so easily distracts and pulls us back and turning back into Jesus Christ and receiving the grace of the gospel all over again and hearing his words of assurance, all your sins are forgiven, every single last one of them. You cannot out-sin God's grace. So if you are here today and you have not repented and turned from your sins and embraced Jesus as your Savior, I want to plead with you to do so. Heed Peter's warning in verse 40. Look there. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. If that's you today, heed that warning. Be saved from this corrupt generation. Don't continue living in rebellion against God. Turn around, turn from your sins. Call out to the risen and ascended King Jesus to save you. And he is willing and able to forgive all your sins and to give you his precious Holy Spirit. So look at verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. We're gonna talk more about that next week of what it looks like to be the spirit-filled community of God living together to make Christ known. But here's the point I want us to take away for today. King Jesus is in the business of saving sinners. During his time on earth, he lived the life of perfect obedience that we could not live 
and then he died on the cross to pay for all of his people's sins. That's how he can offer full, complete forgiveness. He's paid your debt in full. But like what we saw earlier, death wasn't able to hold him, right? He rose powerfully from the grave, defeating sin and death, and he has ascended into heaven where he is set down at his throne, where he is presently ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords, waiting to come back and make everything right at his return. But in this meantime, he has poured out his Holy Spirit and is empowering all of his people to take his message of salvation, of full forgiveness, of amazing grace to all peoples of the earth. So dear Christian, do not forget who Jesus is. He is the risen and exalted King. Worship him, adore him, and do not forget who you are. You are, each and every one of you, his spirit-empowered witnesses to proclaim, to declare, to speak the magnificent acts of God. Your life is not meaningless or boring. You are full of purpose and meaning. You are a commissioned ambassador of the eternal King of Kings. So live this week to make him known. Let's pray. Jesus, our risen and ascended King, we, we worship you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of your precious Holy Spirit. Empower us to be your witnesses this week by your Spirit. Give us opportunities this week to speak of you to our unbelieving family members and friends. And I pray, Jesus, that you would save people. Help us to boldly call people to turn from their sins and to trust in you. Please draw many, many people to yourself. Jesus, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.